I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch things. This is the best freaking veggie burger we've had in a son of a bitch long time. Hey Pete. Hey Aaron. How was your Thanksgiving? <laughs> uh, my Thanksgiving was good. Uh, it was full of meat. It was very meaty. Do you, do, does the movies that we talk about this month, did that affect your desire to eat flesh all day around your family? Actually, I was hoping that they were putting human flesh into the, the various stuffing. And, you know, I, I was hoping the turkey was actually human just so I could give it a shot, you know. So this month is at an effect on you, I think it's fair, fair to say. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think we've seen this, uh, this uh, a month's theme have this big of an impact on Peter since that time he dressed up like a dog and tried to play basketball at an elementary school. <laughs> um <laughs> But, um, but yeah, I might as well tell you what that theme is. We're, if you have never heard us before, where we love to watch, we're a movie podcast. Each month we pick a theme and we discuss four or five movies around that theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast them. And this is our last week um, of The Family That Eats Together Stays Together about uh, cannibal families. And we're wrapping it up with a fucking crazy movie. Uh, called Blood Diner, which, as I think I mentioned maybe last week, was a movie I saw last year for Spooktober. As we picked it for this month, I knew that I really liked it or had enjoyed the experience of watching it. And I was like, I don't remember anything that happens in this movie. That's weird. I just watched it last year. Is it like the Spooktober hangover? I watched it the last week of Spooktober. Like, why don't I remember a fucking thing in this movie? And once I put on the DVD menu and those scenes were playing from the movie, it like slowly came back to me in graphic detail, like some sort of thing I had repressed from PTSD. (laughs) Like, oh, no. Oh, it's this one. Uh, It's all all coming back. Um, (laughs) And even now... Having rewatched it just two days ago, I kind of feel like, was that part of the movie or a dream I had the other day? As Biggie Smalls once said, it was all a dream. He's a, It's sort of dreamlike, like Biggie said, but it's also sort of just like um, having a blackout drunk. And you wake up the next morning and you're like, I'm pretty sure I had fun. Have you ever played a, like a long video game where you were basically drunk for the whole thing? Yeah, I, I think that's Skyrim. I think I, I don't think yeah. I played a moment of Skyrim without Miller High Life in my blood veins. That was definitely like a fun pastime for me <laughs> earlier in my life. Where it was like, oh, I'm just going to sit and play this video game and have a few drinks. And that's what I'm going to do. And then those games, you like put 50 hours and you're like... What is this weird memory? Is that from a game I played? And then, like, <laughs> two years later, you're like, oh, fuck, that's from that Prince of Persia remake. Uh, uh, the video game, video games plus booze is, like, a really great way. Fa- hit fast forward on your life. Because, like, I, ve- I very much rarely remember video game stories anyways. Yeah. Or, like, specific aspects of video games. Tacking on booze, which specifically ruins your ability to remember things. Yeah. Just makes it so, like, that it feels like that chunk of your life is just gone and you hit. Who can back. remember everything? everything you did in 50 hours it's not like a movie uh but this one did slip away from me and another fun fact um i didn't get permission to use his name so i won't 
But I did get contacted by a long time dissolver when I logged this on Letterboxd uh, about that I'd logged it as a rewatch. Uh, and I will sum up what he said, which is, uh, did you – I just saw you rewatched Blood Diner on <laughs> Letterboxd. That's pretty crazy that anyone would ever rewatch that movie. <laughs> um, I, th- I think this was coming from a fan of the movie. I get that this is not like a movie like, oh, yeah, let's just – Blood Diner, I've seen it a hundred times. Let's throw it in and have a good time. This is one of the few movies I've ever watched twice for the show. <laughs> well, again, I I feel like I'd watch it a third time. I own it. Uh, basically, because you have to own it if you want to see it. And, yeah, I really I really do like it, but I think it's going to slip away in a year from now. I'm going to have to watch it again because yeah. that can't have all been in the same movie. So, we're excited to talk about that. Um but yeah, this is an insane fucking movie, and I'm so glad that we got to, to squeeze it in the show. And what I really like about it, as a way to cap this month off, is that this is about a cannibal family who shares their beautiful habit out with the rest of the world, which isn't true of all the other families. True. Yeah, they, they so too many of them hide it under a bushel, and I say no. They're going to let it sh- uh, shine. Shine. Quick, think of a pun. <laughs> Grime, grind. Oh. <laughs> I'm gonna let it grind. Sausages H- get hide. Grind. Hide your human meat under a bushel. No, I'm gonna let it grind. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna serve it. Thine. <laughs> <laughs> so this movie's about sharing your gift, even if your gift is cooking some really good tub of feet into burgers. <laughs> this is the third movie in a row, though, where the family at least uh, claims to be vegetarian. There's like a overcompensation that's happening uh, with the, with this particular cannibal family that I don't think happened in uh, I don't think happened in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think they would, yeah, they just eat meat. Yeah. yeah. They're, we're, but like raw, family. they're vegetarian. Spider Baby, the family, says they're vegetarian. It's, it, it'd be like if uh, you had a sex addiction problem and then whenever anybody asked if I like, what, your dating, what your dating life is like and you were like, I'm celibate. I'm a virgin. I've never had sex before. So you've seen the Kavanaugh hearings. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> we may have to delete this out because we are recording this in September when those are going on. But uh, he may be Chief Justice Kavanaugh fucking in the last week in November. Who the fuck knows? Oh, these are going to be either very joyful or depressing time capsules for us, Peter. And I love that about us. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's great when we edit something in an episode. They're like, that's a great joke. And we actually what we did was we put an expiration date on uh, some section of the show. I think a good portion of our podcast could just be called Expire Soon. Please drink. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wish we would both expire soon. I mean, um, to this, uh, we have been recording a lot. Uh, which I feel like my voice, voice is going a little... We've recorded, I think, like five episodes in eight days, uh, kind of prepping to take the month of December off as we usually do, but still giving you that good, good content that you crave. And we, even when we're recording a lot in a row, we rarely do two nights in a row, which is what we're doing now. And my wife was like, um, so you're drinking again tonight? (laughs) (laughs) 
my brain. I think I think she cracked my code. I think I think she cracked what we're doing here. Wide open. Uh, Did not hire a private investigator based on her checking account. Just was able to put all the pieces together. Very easy. Oh, is this the way that you drink on school nights? Uh, And then make sure that those are the nights it's my turn to wake up with the kids if anything happens. I know. I figured it out. I figured out what this podcast is. Yeah. Uh, Yes. My uh, my fiance figured it out. Oh, didn't we have two bottles of wine in here? I was like, yes, we did. Yeah, but but I recorded an earnest episode for my side podcast, and you know how hard it is for me to talk to Marcus if I'm not blackout drunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you both came out of that one great. Uh, neither of you looked petty. It was it was a great episode. Uh, great episode of Hard Target. Um, I love that it that it was mostly about you two and not about Hard Target. Um, I 100% came out more petty at that edit. <laughs> Like, like, because he sold it so well that I had hurt his feelings and to the point that I believed it. He flummoxed me, put me off my game, and he made me look – because by being apologetic, he made me look weak and that, well, if he's apologizing, he must did something wrong. It's like, it's like our president says, just never admit and apologize for anything. Uh, the one thing that Hard Target has taught me, Peter, is that I need to harden – my target heart. Yeah, I think you should uh, spiral deeper. The best way to get out of a spiral is to just keep spiraling. You spiral enough, it turns into a drill. Yeah, and then you drill through Ooh. your enemies like the driller killer. The driller yeah. and vanilla. <laughs> Man, you know what our audience, I think, really loves? It's the Pete and Aaron episodes after clearly recording for too long. <laughs> where they haven't even they haven't even written a segment. People don't like the segments. <laughs> But, like, I think they like us to put effort into things at the very least, even if it's unlistenable garbage. And here, You know, Aaron, the thing about effort is that it's hard. Too much hard for now. Easy what Peter want do. <laughs> oh, Peter no want do that? Mm-mm. Oh, you know what I say to effort? F. <laughs> I'm not doing it. <laughs> so, Aaron, I just want to ask Peter. you a real quick question. Um, Peter. As somebody who... Uh, Eats all types of meat all the time. Yep. Um, all the time. Do you consider yourself a terrible person at the end of this? I mean, I consider myself a, like, you know, when you're comparing to people that do worse things to you, I don't know how you'd come out feeling terrible. They're eating people, Peter. And I'm not. By yeah. definition, I am a better person than who I've surrounded myself with this month. How do you know you're not eating people, though, I think is, is another question. Well, I haven't gained any... Powers. I don't feel like I've, I've gained anyone's chakra. Yeah. Um, you, you'd, be the, you'd be the shittiest Wendigo on, on Earth if you were just like, well, I'm just going to my job tomorrow. I'm going to be in traffic for a little bit. Um, why do I feel sleepy all of a sudden? Oh, I better pull over here and eat somebody. Yeah, people have been shooting me in the chest at point blank range, and I have not recovered as quickly as I would have expected if uh, I had been eating people. So by the end of this month, I'm full on cannibal. Um, well, I guess. Oh, so you went the opposite direction. You're like mm, tasty. Yeah. So so here's what I'll say. Uh, it's good for the environment. Less people on Earth means less pollution. I mean, you can't argue with that logic. No. Um, B. Uh, I like pigs more than I like people. Fair. Um, C. Something also compelling. Great. Um, can't argue with that logic. D, it's easy. It, 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 all these movies make the murders seem very easy. Um, they mostly get... This one, when they... people don't even care if they happen just right out in the open. 
The yeah. culture, the culture depicted in this movie is kind of like sees murder and people's violent death. Sometimes it's a big deal, and other times it's like someone stubbing their toe. <laughs> we'll talk more about that in the movie, but uh, yeah. So it 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 is really easy because uh, most of the people in this movie and the last movie, as we discussed, not too smart. Not bright. No, no, no. They're dummies. Uh, they're the dumbest people on the planet. They're just lucky that the cops are also extremely stupid. Um, so that that makes the whole thing just um, really like playing with the bumpers on. How many uh, people have you? How many people have you eaten? You, would you say in the well, last le- month? Legally, I can't answer that, but I will say a schmuzzin. Oof, a schmuzzin. Yeah, a schmuzzin. That's more than a quindle. <laughs> Legally actionable if I say a real number, but a baker's a baker's cousin actually. I just <laughs> forgot about one person. Yeah, when you confess your crimes, if there's not a numerical value attached to how many times you've done it, they can't lock you up. Yeah, I, what are they gonna do? Get me in court and be like, uh, uh, "This man confessed to eating a schmuzzin people." <laughs> Did you rob a bank? Yeah, how many? Approximately? No! <laughs> You're right. It's actually a numbers game. So uh, how Dillinger got out of all legal uh, action, uh, all legal culpability was they brought him into court and they said, um, this man robbed 38 banks. And then everyone laughed and he was like, it was 39. <laughs> who knew that the man who played Don John Dillinger would end up being a worse person than John Dillinger? <laughs> That was an irony I don't think anyone saw coming. No, no, they didn't. Look, notorious, wonderful, beloved actor Johnny Depp is portraying uh, notorious criminal John Dillinger. And like 10 years later, it's like horrible criminal Johnny Depp should not be portraying stand-up citizen John Dillinger. (laughs) Yeah, he robbed some banks, but... cocked grandpa would not stand for... Sure, he robs a bank, he threatens some people, but... Uh, so you've never eaten anybody before? Well, I've licked some people. Who hasn't this day and age in this oh, economy? Yeah, you know, he's never licked someone. Uh, DJ Khaled. Oh, snap. Is this like no! the time we've called out DJ Khaled for uh, not eating out partners? But you know who uh, licked, licked people so hard that he got throat cancer? Michael Douglas. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> no, he he licked too much. He probably should have finally taken a bit off, bite off that Tootsie Pop. <laughs> he he, he, he oh, found out how many licks it takes to get to throat cancer. <laughs> oh, our brains are melting. I don't know if any of this is usable. Sure um, isn't, boss. <laughs> <Wait, laughs> that that, that was is- hold on. It was funny that Michael Douglas had throat cancer. And then, he, and I know it's a real thing that can happen, but like he's like, yeah, no, I got throat cancer from eating too much pussy. <laughs> it's not even. It's, it's, it's like it was one of those things that like everyone kind of grit their teeth after. Like all of America was like, yeah, yeah. Well, like it's true. There is a there is an element of like truth because like I guess there is like some you know you uh, HPV and like that can get in your throat and it is something that can happen. But <laughs> his implication was not that that's what happened to him, 
which who the fuck knows if that is what happened to him specifically, but that it was just too much. If you have too much, you're definitely going to get throat cancer. Uh, I should have like laid off when I was full. <laughs> but I just, uh, it takes 20 minutes for your stomach to register as full of pussy. And uh, Michael Douglas just was ignoring those triggers again and again and again. He was like, he's like 68 years old. Can you imagine if your grandpa came out and was like, oh, oh, grandpa, we're pulling for you. Now I'm fine. I got it from eating all this pussy. (laughs) (laughs) And then imagine being Uh, his father. Good for him. Just being like, being like, I don't know, a thousand years old. And then his son coming out on TV and being like, yeah, I'm dying for me. No, that was Yeah. From, from getting laid <laughs> with my mouth. Mouth laid. Um, yeah. Yeah. The- so I think this is a natural transition. <laughs> so speaking of uh, cannibalism. We'll just say this. World. If we are laughing a little too hard for whatever we just said, it's because a big chunk got taken out. So we're like, <laughs> why are they all of a sudden why are they all of a sudden laughing this hard? It doesn't make any sense. The last thing was pretty tame, but they're not getting out of it as quickly as that you'd expect to introduce the transition. Just know you missed some very funny things that we're not sure if they're okay. <laughs> Uh, you can't say that on podcasts. So you want to talk about Hard Target? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's do a good episode of Hard Target without that dead weight. (laughs) That's not nice. Marcus is my friend. Yeah, well, apparently he doesn't get hurt feelings. He just tricks people. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You want to talk about uh, Blood Diner? Blood Diner! I am alternate taglines. First of all, it's going to be hard to beat the real tagline for this movie, which is first they greet you, then they eat you. Mm-hmm. Pretty good. It's pretty good. It's Look, I'm not an old prospector, but that's solid gold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to sink a molar into this one and make sure it's verifiable. And uh, clink, yes, it is. That's a 24-carat tagline if I've ever seen one. The guys at the mall will buy that tagline and give you cash. (laughs) (laughs) Grandma, do not sell your taglines to the people at the mall. It's not a fair price. If it was, they wouldn't be in business. Why don't you understand? Grandma's always getting sucked in by kiosks. They're selling all their gold for cash and giving away their houses. Grandma's. When will they learn? Uh, (laughs) Well, thankfully, it's our biggest audience, so they're getting some good advice on this app. Yeah, or criticism. And uh, so if we're not around this time next year, uh, you try and tune into this podcast station and there's nothing but a (laughs) dust dust bowl happening. Great. No, the grandmas were here. Grandmas love criticism. As long as it's constructive. I would also do something like nice to meet you with M-E-A-T. Oh, that's good. Uh, I, I was just going to do the rhyming. Like, there's nothing finer than eating Jimmy at our diner. At our blood diner. That'd be great. I mean, they eat people that aren't Jimmy. They probably eat some names. <sighs> okay, hold on. Let me go back to the drawing board with this. What's a universal name? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh... So, what's, what, what happens? To the, what's here's the thing. Them? 
Peter, I, my challenge for you is to do the plot recap that is under telling the entire movie. And here's why. This movie is a collection of scenes. And we're just going to have to talk about them in the podcast proper. There's so many things that happen. It's nothing but wanna, insane. It's nothing but insane scenes. Yes. This um, is going to be this is going to be a whole episode. I think of like any scenes we didn't talk about. There is an overreaching plot, but it is just a bunch of vignettes of them trying to assemble the the god they're putting together. So. I, that is my challenge to you. If you can somehow do this in like actually 90 seconds, I'll be very impressed because I think it's going to get very easy to get bogged down in. And then this part happens. And then this part happens. And then, and then, and yeah. then. Their actual recap for this is that two brothers are little kids, uh, you know, whatever, 20 years before the events of the main movie. And they're sitting in their, uh, they're sitting playing with toys and they're crazy uh, Uncle Anwar bursts through the door and basically hands them their duty that they're going to try and fulfill for the rest of the movie. Or worship a Lumerian goddess that's part of their heritage called Shitar, and to help resurrect her and bring her back to Earth and uh, all the things that it requires. And that requires you building a sort of like conglomerated person of different parts of, uh, you know, un- I'm using air quotes, like unclean women making a virginal sacrifice to her as well and uh, also in order for that to happen you need to enact some sort of debauched orgy uh, to really like get this this festival of Shitar to happen this Lumerian festival and bring her back to earth and let her reign again and so these two brothers grow up and they're actually after this this uncle you know came in through the door and walks out the door to be murdered by cops uh this is we cut forward 20 years and the uncle is being his his body is being taken exhumed out, exhumed yeah. by the by the the kids they're taking the brain out of the uncle and now the uncle's brain is in a jar in his eyeballs and he can talk to them and see what they're doing and is giving them sort of advice. So these three people... A lot of criticism, too. Yeah. These three people, basically, well, two and a quarter people, um, mm. are essentially gathering up as many women to create this, you know, Frankenhooker conglomerated person thing uh, for the festival. While one of them... Well, one of them... Um, Michael is courting a virgin and they're basically setting it up for this big fucking party orgy thing at the end of the movie where Sheetar will, you know, rise. That's kind of the movie, though, is just them trying to hunt women and them successfully. Well, yeah, because they they are getting like, I need an arm from this and a stomach from this. And yeah, yeah, putting it together with like certain requirements for each person. There's like a bunch of mini quests. Yes, and eventually uh, they get to this big party at the end. They're about to sacrifice uh, Michael's, you know, girlfriend. They have no pity for her or anyone else. And at the party, they do a bunch of crazy shit. One, <laughs> they they give everyone hunger pills that turn them into zombies, but they yep. love the hunger pills like you would like cocaine. Like they're almost like eight balls or something. Like people yeah. are just like eating them down. So everyone's turning into zombies. They're so hungry for human flesh. They're, they're willing to eat this big fat, this big, um, these big pots of human flesh that, that the brothers have put out in front of everyone. And they're, everyone's eating it and loving it. 
And while that's happening, while that's happening, they're on a separate stage that no one is paying attention to, uh, wherein completing the completing the ritual. Yes, completing the ritual. The, the ritual gets interrupted by cops who are super ineffectual the whole movie. And the cops just start, like, shooting the zombies and shooting the brothers and murdering them. And eventually, Michael gets shot in the head. Yep. George's head gets shoved into the chest cavity of Sheetar as she rises from, you know. Because that's the final thing. You have to feed a virgin to uh, Sheetar, but not in her mouth. Her entire chest cavity opens up. Basically, it's like a giant torso length vagina mouth things have gone poorly yeah but their, their plan worked they sacrificed the virgin they had their their debauched you know cannibal orgy uh shitar is alive and the final shot of the movie is the brothers are dead and shitar is strolling out into the street wearing a red dress and a guy picks her up uh and presumably they're going to go back to his house and he'll get eaten well, you're forgetting that the ceremony is complete by Sheetar eating Michael, which implies that he was a virgin. Or George. George is the dummy. Yeah, no, Michael gets just gets shot. A lot of chaos. Yeah, I remember that because there's actually a very weirdly touching moment where George, like, who is sort of a simpleton. Um, I don't know what the, the if there's a polite term to use for George, but he's sort of mostly like grunting and yelling. And George yells out in remorse for the first time in the whole movie, his brother's dead. And then he tries to kill the cop, and then that fails, and George gets shoved in the head vagina. So, so yeah, the virginal sacrifice does indeed happen. It just ends up being one of the brothers. But they're playing well, and I, Yeah, it does. They bring forth the shitar. And it's weird. I mean, I, I the movie didn't make much money. It is weird, though, because like, I would have loved Jackie Kong to have directed a sequel where shitar goes on... To, to rain havoc on the earth, you know, sort of like a omen to Damien kind of thing, you know? Yeah, and this was, I think, this was their last movie. This is just like kind of a ravenous situation where they uh, make make their best movie and then they're gone from Hollywood or Hollywood adjacent because that's how it works for women directors in Hollywood. Yeah, she she had some small opportunities here and there. She directed, I think, a TV movie in 2001, but her career was largely over after this. Uh, it, it, and that was not through lack of trying. She didn't, like, retire. She didn't be like, I'm moving away from Hollywood to start a business or raise a family or whatever the reason people is that leave Hollywood. Um, go back to school. She just couldn't get the work, and she still can't get the work. And, and in, in interviews, she's, very, she's a very fun version of, like, excited but a little but like angry because like i don't know she made a cult movie but it doesn't seem to really be making her any money yeah this is a really well done movie like this movie is insane but it's very like purposeful insane it's not like the apple or a lot of these horror movies where it's like they were just trying to add as much ridiculousness and grossness and gore and stuff like that where it it just it's over the topness and everything else is what endears it to the audience. Like this movie is very purposely funny in a very almost ahead of its time way. Like there's a lot of moments that are like so clear cut comedy, but kind of operating on a level that you wouldn't see to like a alt comic 
resurgence in the like the the you know the 2000s yeah there's a nihilistic detachment that that feels almost like yeah yeah like a wet hot or david wayne thing like it's a very clever comedy at times it is and it, it just it's it's not funny like bad it's funny purposefully while still being this over the top gory movie so i really love it it's just this insane thing that i pro- if i had discovered it in like High school, especially, I would have. It would have been a movie like uh, Dead Alive or Evil Dead Two that I probably was just showing to everybody because it kind of has that same manic energy to it. It's a wonderful horror comedy, which is why I've seen it a handful of t- times now because it's it is so enjoyable. It clips along so well, almost never gets bogged down like these movies do. So, uh, first off, there are cops. In this movie. Well, not American cops. I'm assuming they're the Yugoslavian uh, <laughs> special brigade. They they do feel like they're like, they, they're like a weird bureau that was imported from another country. But they're like, and now you serve the entire Los Angeles County area. Good luck. They also have the worst dubbing I've ever seen. It's, uh, they, are, they are really like the Ukrainian mafia took over a police precinct, but they're like, we're still going to investigate these murders. <laughs> and like, while we're running all of our schemes. So there's a massacre scene and one of the uh, one of the cops, the like more like Mediterranean looking guy, the goofy guy is like, it's like, yeah, man, it's like a deli cuts or whatever. And his police commander immediately punches him in the stomach out of nowhere. And he goes, well, yeah, yeah, people shouldn't make jokes like that. You're right. He does that three times. It's so fucking funny because you hate that character. The character is such a creepy fucking dork. And the fact that like the movie constantly embarrasses him and shames him it makes it so much funnier. It's very it's very dirty workish. Like, I'll give you a punch in the stomach, Mitch. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not. I punch you in the stomach. Yeah. Usually in these movies, you're like, oh, we're having fun following the killer. This is a this is a blast. We'll get to see all the weird new kills and we get to see the victims escape or try to escape. And, you know, the mystery sort of builds. Like, why is the killer doing this? And then the cops come in and the cops are like five or ten steps behind the audience. And you're just you just put your hands on your head and you're like, but but why do we have to talk to these guys at all? Can't we just like check in with them for like 10 seconds in, in like an hour i don't know <laughs> i know that they can't just have deus ex machina cops come in which kind of happens yeah in, uh, I, your vice is a locked room which is just like the cops just kind of at the end they're like yeah i guess the cops are important in this um, <laughs> but but in this like the cops are part of the jokes and part of the fun so like it's all part of this this constant insanity that defies human logic so you don't get annoyed when you have to jump to the cops away from the brothers so there's a couple of big things i want to talk about in this movie peter before we get into that though you you did some research into some contemporary reviews of the time yeah i read i read some reviews of the time they were yeah i haven't read them i'm excited to hear them but from what you told me uh from the sense of them i remember when we were reading reviews for turkey shoot and like i was expecting insanity and then i got turkey shoot which is not that crazy of a exploitation movie but i feel like if i had read some crazy reviews and then saw blood diner i'd be like this matches that tone what's kind of beautiful about it is that at the time i was reading uh you know a new york times review and a washington post oh 
And <laughs> look, oh, I would have liked the movie a little better if they would have made other pizza pie. <laughs> yeah, the New York Times one was mad because it's an L.A. movie and New York is so much better than L.A. As New Yorkers say uh, five, ten times a day without realizing it. Uh, Bada bing! You know, unprovoked. We'll just talk about how much better New York is better than L.A. We should have saw at least one rat in that diner. <laughs> Like a big New York rat, like a gabagool. <laughs> Look, if the rats won't even eat in the diner, no people are going in there. <laughs> if Pizza Rat doesn't show up to your place on the first night, it's going to be a disaster. You don't think the rats in New York like pizza? <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So I read some reviews of the era. I love reading era re- reviews. It's one of the re- especially of horror movies yes. because there's so many like an Ebert too, who's like all oh, these like classics everyone loves is like this was a piece of shit. Everyone hated horror movies. I love the yeah. pearl clutching reviews. What I maybe love more than the pearl clutching reviews are the reviews that are just like the effects looked kind of cheap and um, the movie didn't really make any sense and um, it's kind of funny at times and you're like. Wait, you're so close to the truth. You're so close to the truth. Just break through. Um, because that was what like the New York Times review specifically was. Where they were like, it's kind of cheap looking and it's it's funny. It's not scary. And you're just like, no, no, no. You, that's why it's good is because it's this like trashy horror movie and professionalism and high quality sheen is not necessarily the, the end all be all to cinema. Right. And that's why I love this movie is because like, it's rarely scary. It can be very, it can be very creepy at times, just in terms of certain effects, the chest vagina dentata on, uh, on Sheetar is very uncomfortable to look at. Yeah. And there's the scene where the, one of the, Nazi saxophone players or like dressed like a Nazi gets a uh, part of his leg bitten off. And that's like an extremely grotesque effect. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The money is there for the gross effects. Uh, the money was not there for, you know, certain performers to be fully there. So Sheba, uh, the the uh, woman cop who's partnered with a creepy like uh, sex pervert uh, man cop. She's like taking the case very seriously and she has she has this weird way of talking and it's so funny because my brother and I got like 70 minutes into the movie and he goes, okay, is she drunk? Why is she talking like that? And then finally there was a scene that like broke through and you're like, oh, she's British and faking an American accent. That's why. <laughs> At least she got to use her own voice unlike all the other cops. <laughs> Who they like, not everyone's voice matches how they look, but they seem to like cast only based on what would this guy never sound like? Let's <laughs> use that voice actor. And they use the same voice actor twice, which is very confusing. So there is a uh, like a fat vegan restaurant critic that goes into the restaurant that the two brothers run for the entirety of the movie named uh, Vitamin C. And yep. he has one voice. And like I like I uh, quoted for the opening title of this thing, he says, that's the best frickin' veggie burger I've had in a son of a bitch long time. Uh, he has a weird sort of like southern twangy voice that's very distinct. Later, they talk to a cop who was involved in like the original crime with Uncle Anwar, who's the guy in the jar. But like back in the day, he had a body. They talk to him. He has the same voiceover actor. Yeah. And it's so confusing because they're both just fat dudes with mustaches. <laughs> And I guess what this movie is pretty offensively positing is that all fat dudes and mustaches sound the exact 
same. Yeah, that's that's pretty dark, Jackie. Pretty dark stuff. But on the other side of the review equation, yes, it was amazing how many reviewers at the time missed the point. It is so hard to recognize, like, genius in that sort of context because, A, it's in the middle of 100 movies that look just like it. And taking Blood Diner out of the 80s and having it be sort of um, an object, an artifact, uh, you know, outside of the era really makes you appreciate it more. When it's just mixed in with a hundred other horror movies, I mean, she might have carried in the 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 uh, Karen something. I, I forget the the reviewer's name, unfortunately, but she could have carried in a hundred preconceptions about the movie before she saw it. Whereas, like, I was like. Hey, I want this movie to be good. It's a weird movie that I that we got on Amazon. Yeah, it's only I think recently where like the critical gatekeepers recognize that like trash is also a form of art. And so like most of these kind of uh exploitation or horror movies of the era like it was they just weren't con- by the critical community in general that was like is where the rotten tomato scores come from and where all these critical consensus sections on on Wikipedia come from like they're just outliers and there was like you know books like billy briggs book of trash movies but like in general they were kind of seen as like cult or lesser cinema and i just don't think the appreciation of it among the critical community like really took off but like now a lot of our critical voices are you know obviously people that we followed on the dissolve and the av club and like people adjacent to that where there is kind of an appreciation of prestige dramas and action movies and like that type of stuff but also a recognition that like just because these movies weren't doing exactly what uh fucking like ordinary people was trying to do or something like that like <laughs> it it was still accomplishing its goals in a way that was uh that speaks to the the talented nature of the cast and the directors. Like these weren't all just cheapy flicks to sell movies. There was a lot of real creativity and art and innovation occurring. And like occasionally a couple of those movies would break through, but in general, they were just kind of dismissed as another gore fest that the high school kids are going to love. And then like all those high school kids grew up to be critics and they're like, Oh, this is like art. Like, I'm sorry that, it wasn't fucking the last picture show, but it's the last picture show I want to see on a Tuesday night. Being outside the context really helps you appreciate it. The insanity of this uh, is so pure and so from scene to scene, it seems obvious to certain people like us. But like at the yeah. time, it might have just been like, what is this bullshit? Like none of this drama is resonating. Yeah, it just, yeah, again, like there was a very strict definition of what cinema could be. And and this and a lot of other things fell out of it. And I'm sure that gap will only continue to widen. Uh, and who knows? We may look back on things that we thought now was like, that's a piece of shit. And like, go, actually, there's some some very good Hallmark movies that you guys skipped over while you were rolling your eyes. Yeah, um, it's I, very I possible. Uh, one thing I really want to talk about, which is my favorite thing of this movie. And it's one of my favorite things in horror movies or movies with villains at all, which is when the villains are portrayed not as evil, but as like indefatigable, joyous people. <laughs> There's just something so funny about these two brothers. Nothing bothers them. They never get stressed out. They are not particularly bright, but they just have like almost this weird charisma around how they're just like, yeah, we just want to get Shiva and destroy the earth. Let's do it. All right. We got to cut up these people. Like 
that kind of like joyous bumbling is is so much fun for villains. It almost needs to be in a movie that is this like potentially grotesque and troubling because if they were more malicious or more Mr. Burns like and putting their fingers together and going, I'm going to cut up this girl. But like, it's like, no, we're just trying to get our goal of having our ancestor God back. Like, I've got no choice. I think this is a good time to talk about the, the movie that this was sort of supposed to be a sequel to but ended up yeah. being a remake of blood feast by herschel gordon lewis have you ever seen a herschel gordon lewis movie maybe i've seen blood feast and i stopped there because i so disliked the experience of watching it it was i've like, heard that um blood feast is very poorly considered now all of his posters are the same i don't think i've seen any of these but even he hates it there's a 17 disc box set on amazon <laughs> Hard pass from you. God. He, Blood Feast was a movie about a, a man from Egyptian heritage who uh, worshipped this Shitar goddess. It wasn't Shitar, though. It was a male. It was like Kitar or something. <laughs> it was Kitar? It might not have been Kitar. <laughs> he worshipped Kitar. That would have made I a mean, much who better doesn't? movie. Who doesn't worship a guitar? I want to see all that jazz, but it's just about a man who, like, is ruining his relation, his relationship with his family, ruining his life because he just has to pursue a love of guitar. So equally funny, it's Ishtar. So what? they were trying to bring back the famous Dustin Hoffman, Warren Beatty, Elaine. Elaine May comedy. Yeah, I can remember the exact goddess name. Thank you for clarifying, because that would have been an annoying mistake to make, uh, in, you know, for the record. Well, but I, I think it's interesting that they changed uh, changed it from a uh, male goddess to a female goddess. Which, yeah, I really like and also sets up a sequel that I don't think they ever planned on having. The uh, the original movie, yeah, it's just about a guy who abducts people and, and he... Uh, he abducts people and sacrifices them to this this Egyptian goddess and or god, I guess. And it's very boring. It's like sixty seven minutes or something, seventy two minutes, and it felt like three or t- three or four times that length. Like I had such a hard time watching it. This is sort of a remake, whatever sequel. But like in that, the only reason I want to touch on that is because the original movie is like never accidentally funny. It's never ironically funny. Like, it's not good hipster sort of uh, fodder. Like, I don't get any ironic enjoyment about about its badness. And the main character, because the main character is so serious and so grim and so damaged with Blood Diner, it's kind of interesting to see a movie like this where the guys aren't haunted at all. <laughs> the guys are like, they, they seem like they have a pretty good brother relationship. Like they seem to have like, they communicate really well and they like know how to tag team. And if like, they're, t- if they're like goal was to score tickets to a kiss concert, their entire demeanor would remain the same. I love how they just power through their social awkwardness, like a jackhammer because they just they're just like, well, yeah, we've got a goal. Of course, we're going to accomplish the goal. And if that girl isn't interested, then there's a hundred more girls that are interested. We're good. Well, and they're and they're following like a set list that has been made for them. So when they're like, well, we have to get a girl who uh, like when they have to get those two girls who are uh, I forget the exact term they use. But the implication is that they're uh, slutty. 
they're not making value judgments on women. They're just like, this is what the list says. And I know that's I know that's a very like razor thin line to walk, but I do think it somehow allows what could be a very like frustrating 80s movie. And I think it allows it to be fun. And I guess I'm not surprised that a woman directed this film because it it makes a lot of jokes at the way that men perceive women in a way that I don't think would be the case if – like I think this movie is drastically different if a man directed it. It would not have been the same movie. Uh, it would not have the sort of winking charm probably. It would have been a more straightforward thing. It would have asked us – it would have made asks of us that I think are unfair. It would have asked us to care about these brothers on like a deeper dramatic level. Um, it would have asked us to, or kind of dwelled on the like the misogyny yes, and the view yes. of women that like was so prevalent, like and the sexism and like the what is a very correct criticism of like slasher movies in general is like the way that it both exploits uh, and paints women as victims. Like they go through these horrific experiences and then but the audience is psyched about it because they get to see gore and they get to see nudity and there's something about this movie that while it hits similar notes to a lot of those movies it feels like it's playing a different song yeah i think the closest movie i could probably compare it to is frankenhooker i think it's because frank hennelotter all is he's a man but he doesn't approach the material from a misogynistic perspective and he seems to have a lot of respect for the women in his in his movies and their sexual choices and but he knows like how to satirize how men view women and there's also like the the specific goofiness of the violence in this movie so like there's a woman who gets her head shoved into a deep fryer and it comes up a giant fucking like corn ball <laughs> like it's like this brown thing and she's just running around and like that sort of comic violence and like the way that body parts just seem to be basically like parts of a mannequin or like a barbie doll um that sort of like comic approach to the violence i think speaks to the the comedic level of it it's not going for the it's not going to it's not trying to sexualize the actual core mechanics neither of the movies are trying to sexualize the core mechanics of uh, how these murders happen. They're basically treating it like these like abstract pieces. Well, and the men are all roundly gross in different ways. Like it's, uh, it's Sheba basically is the only cop who finds the trail. The one time there's like a fair fight. Michael gets his ass kicked by the ninja woman on the beach. <laughs> like, yeah, that's a great scene. And then the only ends up dying through accidental stalactite. Or might, whatever the top one is that falls down on her. Like, they are just bumbling incompetence. Uh, my cat's playing with the fucking doorstop under the door. <laughs> uh, they are just bumbling incompetence who stumble their way to success in like a, almost like a Dumb and Dumber or any of those kind of uh, Zucker Abrams type movies. Like, they are not competent. The movie demands they get there. And then yeah. they sacrifice themselves up to let this uh, female god roam the earth. They, yeah. They were being used, ultimately. Yeah. And I, especially when they go to – Dumb and Dumber is a perfect example. When they go to the bar to pick up women, they are dressed in the most, like, ridiculous, like, hyper-modern uh, getup with – 
the these like ridiculous pattern shirts and these big wigs with ridiculously poofed up hair and george is blonde but he's wearing this sort of like mop top black wig it is just it, it, it i love i love jackie kong like stepping in oh by the way i didn't mention this her nickname is queen kong which I was gonna, I was gonna make that joke because so that's a perfect, yeah. Queen Kong is willing to make that like teasing. She's constantly making fun of these guys for how weird they are. These like rituals that men put themselves through to like pick up women are so ridiculous, and they they have no factual basis in what women actually are looking for. They just happen to work in this case because they're throwing themselves out there, and it happens to work. Yeah. I kind of feel like the rest of this podcast should be like we need to have some space for the scenes we want to talk about because that's what most of this movie is. And I don't want to try to rush that at the very end. So, Peter, I, I got to get this out. One of the greatest touches is the fucking mannequin who is the partner of the vitamin C uh, health restaurant. Uh, what? what the fuck? What? Okay, so, okay. It is incredibly confusing. They do not establish until, like, five minutes into that scene that it is a that it is a ventriloquist dummy. For it's not even it's, really a ventriloquist dummy. It's just, like, an, a shitty mannequin. It doesn't have a mouth that moves or even one that looks like it can move, which I think is actually weirder. It's just made of wood. There is a rival health food restaurant in blood diner and he has an owner who's pissed off because the blood diner is stealing all of their business because they're so good at serving up health food surprise they're actually sering human meat Whoa! <laughs> the cops go to the diner to ask him some questions and half the conversation is coming from this mannequin dummy it looks like if you went to like a wild what like a kitschy wild west town and we're like a thrift store <laughs> and there's just a gold prospector sitting in the corner yeah uh, that thing like it's so creepy and rubbery and and uncomfortable to look at and they don't establish until like three or four minutes into the scene that the guy behind the counter is voicing the the mannequin thing and he keeps talking to it after they leave like well but hold on there are scenes with the mannequin talking and he is not moving his voice or he's like sweating getting out of the car so i am not a hundred percent sure if the implication is this is a guy talking to his mannequin for no reason or this character who is his partner in the restaurant or just a regular that he's really good friends with just happens to be made of wood because it is that type of movie where why not just have his friend made of wood? Why do we need to cast a person and we'll just have a squeaky voice with it? I'm not sure which one it's doing. I, 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 I don't know. I, I'm willing to humor the idea that they literally just cast a mannequin as an actual character. <laughs> I, I, that's the reading I love. That's, I just love, again, when I talked about like almost like alt comedy, like postmodern like Tim and Eric type stuff. It's like this movie is full of odd touches like that, that end up really becoming more than the sum of their parts. And it's the type of thing, as I've talked about so many times in this podcast of like liking crazy fucking maximalism for no reason. Like, I don't know. Yeah. This movie's already nuts. 
let's have a mannequin as one of the characters and not comment on it. You know, uh, in, a, in a much more reserved way. It's, it's one of the reasons why I love Duke of Burgundy. That movie's uh, so good. Yeah, the movie's great. And it's not the same type of like maximalist gore fest as this. But one of the touches I like is that just in the audience, at all the butterfly lectures, there's mannequins. They're not explained. They're not commented on. I don't think any of them actually ask any questions. But it's just adds to the oddness of the movie itself. And I like when movies do that. So I'm more than willing to say that that this character, instead of casting a human being, was cast by a old-timey prospect or tall and voiced by a human being. <laughs> He literally is a prospector. Like he, like there's a snake in his boot, but he doesn't recognize it yet. You know, because he can't move his head. He never moves anything. He really no. is just in these poses. There's no, but again, that would it probably would have they would have had to hire a puppeteer, which would have cost more money than hiring another extra or another actor. Worth noting, he's talking to other people at the restaurant too. That's why and, I really like the idea that he's just a character. While the other guy's like leaving and cooking and stuff. Yeah, he's a regular, but he's a regular. He, he's that restaurant owner's favorite regular, so he can't let him go, you know? Maybe it's a meta commentary on like regulars at bars turn into furniture. <laughs> he's basically becoming the material the building's made out of. Provocative. <laughs> yeah, man. She's really sending up consumer culture and how uh, our society says, you know, why not? Why not just go get another burger, man? You know? Yeah. Crazy. You live shit. here now. Everyone's yelling norm. What they should be saying, is this normal? Oh, man. Man. Breaking everyone's wide yelling Frasier and they're, they should be saying, is this a Sure. Of our humanity. Also, Lilith is cheating on you. That <laughs> Lilith. Oh man, oh man, she scamp. is. She's a scamp. Frazier couldn't hold her down, and I'm. He made himself crazy by trying. Yeah. Ultimately. Yeah. <laughs> because she had sex with the person she was living in the biodome. <laughs> <laughs> That's a real thing that happens on the last season of Cheers. That she leaves him and goes to live in a biodome. <laughs> No Polly Shore. No Polly Shore? What about uh, the Baldwin no one in likes? Steven? I mean, a no lot of the... Alec, I guess. The Biodome happened all off screen. So I guess I, I guess I shouldn't have said the Polly Shore wasn't there. I don't know. Yeah, maybe she was sick of the sort of, uh, you know, stiffness and the intellectualism of Frasier. And she needed someone with, you know, like... She gotta go fucking a Biodome. Yeah, hell yeah. She needs someone id-driven, you know? Which biome do you think she fucked in first? Oh, like, shit. It, get in Lilith's head. You're, you're not Peter. You're Lilith. Well, she's an ice queen, so you'd expect the tundra. But uh, I think that because of that, she would make love in a uh, swampy bog. Um, because she's an ice queen. Outside, her, <laughs> out, outside of her comfort zone. Is this like, are you using like a weird deck building strategy for Magic the Gathering? Like <laughs> white and black. Great combo. You have life and death. <laughs> It would be a swampy bog because it would melt her cold heart, okay? Does she have lifelink? <laughs> what, what, uh, what scene? Your turn, Peter. Take a, take a little scene turn. Take it out for a ride. I'll take it out. I'll take it for a little ride. Take it out um, for a little spin. So we didn't talk about something here. Sure. This movie is short. It's 87 minutes. Yet, yep. there is still an entire subplot that is forced in for seemingly no reason. Uh, that Michael yep. and George have two interests in the world, or one interest in the world, and that's... Awakening Shitar 
Yeah. Except for, as George reveals partway through the movie, his other interest is before he awakens Sheetar and brings on the apocalypse, he has to defeat Jimmy Hitler in the arena. So there's oh, yeah. a bunch of wrestling shit in this movie that we didn't talk about. George, like, wrestles a patron for saying that wrestling is dumb or whatever. And then before the third act can really kick off in, in you know, true fashion. Sorry, yeah, that's with the leg biting. Because I forgot there's Hitler's in the music scene when when George bites Jimmy Hitler's leg. That's the really fucking gross scene. Yeah, and he, he spits it I out. I got my Hitler's confused. <laughs> Never let that happen again. Um, he, there's, <laughs> That's there the are slogan. three Hitler's in this movie and two of them play saxophone. <laughs> and the other one is a wrestler. All blondes, which, fun fact, inaccurate, Hitler-wise. It was a, a brunette. Yeah, but weirdly liked blondes. But so there's a third act wrestling thing where George needs to wrestle Jimmy Hitler right before they go and perform their massive ceremony. And it's something that's easy to forget about because it appears to be detached from the rest of the plot. Like besides uh, showing a date go bad, I don't. But even that again, he's just completely just like, oh, yeah, sorry. I guess I shouldn't have brought you here. I don't know why you'd like this. Well, let's get going. And then he punches her out and then takes her to the venue anyways. Like, he could have done that straight from home. Like, the the whole wrestling plot makes no sense. Um, except for that maybe Jackie Kong was into wrestling at the time. It did seem like he really liked her, but also, he, he has no dimension. So, oh, yeah, you're really cool to hang out with. Let's talk. Also, though, I really, just let you know, Sheetar's going to protect you, which he says very early. Just if, if you're a person listening to this and someone's like i like you and Sheetar, the god i worship does too get out get out of that relationship don't start one that's a deal breaker ladies deal breaker is he worshiping is he worshiping a lumerian god deal, a deal breaker. breaker that it sounds nice on paper when someone says that the god that they worship and know is is protecting you. It sounds nice. Sounds like protection, that's a good thing. It feels nice that someone would want their god to protect you. But take a step back from the whole picture. Don't get too focused on the protection part and think about this. He he's talking to a god. Gods don't exist and not to the level of like protection spells. So I want you to really think about what you're doing. Ladies, protect yourself. <laughs> Be your own god. Yeah. Be your own Sheetar. <laughs> yeah. Learn, learn to sheetar protect yourself. I'm not trying to gender this male and female. But it doesn't it, protect yourself before you sheetar wreck yourself. Yeah, because pretty soon relationship's going to go bad and you're going to be sheetaring your pants. <laughs> so I like, again, just the, the unbridled joy of these murderous psychopaths. George runs over someone and it doesn't take and he keeps going back and forth to run over this person. It takes a very long time. For him to die. And I like it because I think it's the best facial expression acting in all movies combined. The pure joy on his face when he has run over this person. And then the disappointment when this person dusts himself off and gets back up. It's You feel like he is very disappointed and surprised that this happened. Which is a natural first reaction. You ran over someone. He got back up. You're surprised. And then he keeps doing the same thing. And I like that his emotions don't change at any point. You think the fifth time he gets back up, you'd be like less surprised by it. Every time it is like the biggest shock in his lifetime that this guy has 
has gotten back up. And every time he's so happy when he thinks he's accomplished his task by running him over to death. He's like smiling and giggling and laughing. George is a good character, by the way. He's like a puppy. He's like a puppy dog. Oh, I got the bone. Oh, the bone fell under the couch again. He's just giggling and laughing at everything. And he's clearly a very, he's a, he's a simple George. He can't stay mad at him. You know, he, he's just a big old sweetie. And, and, and when he's trying to run that guy over to Mambo music over and over <laughs> and over again, you just can't help but be like, I, I hope you win today, buddy. I hope you run over that, that fat biker just again there. and again. There's so many of those weird death scenes that are so much fun and funny. Now, just over the top, there's the – there's that. There's the part where um, the the proprietor of the vitamin C uh, gets both of his hands cut off <laughs> and then tries to drive after the brothers in his car, which is hard to do without hands. But he's trying to move the steering wheel and then all of a sudden he goes, ah, and he's just he just went straight into a mountain. <laughs> like, I don't know what <laughs> – and again, just because your hands – are gone, which no one's going to argue is a handicap when it comes to steering the car. I'm not sure why he didn't hit the brakes well before the mountain came up. It Mountain's big. Very big. Oh, Aaron, did you miss the part where his stumps were still bleeding so much arterial blood that it was covering up the screen and he couldn't see? I saw that part, but he still screams, recognizing there's a mountain that he's about to hit. He's like, I guess I guess I'm hitting a mountain now. There is literally nothing I can do in this car that's going 20 miles an hour. Yeah. It doesn't even really crash. It just sort of like rocks up on the hill. Yeah, it doesn't. They didn't have the budget to break the hood of the car. It just kind of just kind of like if you hit a little speed bump and your, your hood lifted in the air for a second. <laughs> I mean, we can assume he bled out. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, it was literally firing off a gallon every three seconds. So, I think we can assume that. <laughs> yeah. The human body has, what, 80 gallons of blood? Yeah. Right? I've never read a science book, but I've only seen this movie and the 2010 remake of Piranha. So, I'm assuming <laughs> the human body has 500 gallons of blood. Well, can you guess the other death that I really want to talk about, Peter? But that is a crazy death. Are you talking about the scene where the two brothers come in Reagan masks and shoot up an entire naked aerobics class? No, that's a crazy scene, too. Are you talking about the scene where he offers a woman, he says, like, I've, I've got, like, a really big dick, and then he drains all of her blood? No, not that one. That's a, a, Again, I think this is a, will be a fun way to get through all the crazy deaths in this movie <laughs> before you get to the one I'm thinking of. Are you thinking of George literally cutting a woman in half vertically? Nope, not that one. <laughs> like Ichi the Killer style. No. Um, uh, who else dies in this movie? Are you? Th- you're not thinking of George getting his head shoved in the vagina dentata chest. I am not. Uh, also, a good death. I feel like we have turned this into a Simpsons rate gag on accident. <laughs> where do you keep? There's so many crazy deaths in this movie. You have an unending supply to hit yourself in the face with. Before we get to the one I'm talking about. It is the most underplayed and surprising death of the movie. Hmm. Okay, I'm just going to tell you. So, when they first go to find two promiscuous women, they drive their car and they roll up to the club. (gasps) Oh, yes. (laughs) Someone, get one of the club people waiting in line, gets punched, falls on the ground, and the car that they are driving runs over his head, which explodes with blood. Two things then happen. 
One, George and Michael get out and laugh at what an idiot this very, very dead guy is. And then the bouncer is like, yeah, come on, come in the club. He says, like, have a good time they, inside, guys. And then he turns to his friend who got crushed and said, you okay? <laughs> yeah. Hey, you okay? You good? His head exploded like a water balloon being run over by a car. Um, That's what we were all laughing about. Everybody was laughing about it. It's so funny. Like, in the same way the mannequin, it's just this idea of they get into a fight, they push this guy's head in up. Uh, into a place where his head explodes. And everyone's like, oh, I don't want to deal with this. You guys just go in. It is that sense of life not having the same value in our universe, which I think also is very helpful in enjoying some of the more slashery elements. Like, this already takes place in a universe with these weird Egyptian gods and talking mannequins. Like, I clearly they don't value life to the level that we do or even understand it. The fact that they're like, you Okay. Do you want a doctor? <laughs> Person whose head is under a tire? A giant puddle of blood? Yeah. Like literally a watermelon exploded all over under a hydraulic. Like, I, I guess you, besides the idea of this uh, setting up a stage where life is just not precious um, in, this, in this world that we're seeing, or it just being kind of funny, like, I, I can't think of another bigger point to that scene, unless there's something I'm not considering. Uh, the point to consider is that it's hilarious and they could pull yeah. off that exploding watermelon head effect. <laughs> yeah. There's so much like disregard for human life and human dignity in this movie that like comical disregard. All right. First off, there's a smash cut to a nude aerobics class, which is amazing because like usually smash cut to something that you can instantly understand, Right. But instead, they smash cut to a nude aerobics class and it was like, wait, why? Why are they being filmed? Why is their instructor a man? Why are their high school kids doing this? Why do they think that this will make them better going into like their cheerleading finals or whatever the fuck they were trying to prepare for? It doesn't matter. Why do they break in with Reagan masks and, and then kill the them all? And then the brothers break in with Reagan masks and Uzis and blow them all away. And there's... A this is like pre-point break, too. Yes, yes. Georgie starts playing with the corpse head and, like, making, like, I'm Sheeta. <laughs> like, yeah. Again, Georgie is a very special boy. Then uh, Michael is, like, sawing through one of the girl's legs or whatever, and he, like, turns to Anwar's skull jar, and he goes, like, Hey, Uncle Anwar, am I doing this right? <laughs> Not only the murders, but the disrespect of the body is, like, whole gag. Gleefully doesn't give a shit. And that's why I think I, I want a sequel. I wanted a sequel to this, like, back in the day, right after this movie. Same budget, if not bigger, to see Sheetar wreck more chaos on the Earth. I think there is something freeing to watching a horror movie where life isn't valuable within the realm of the universe that you're watching. It kind of lets you off the hook because in horror movies where people are suffering grisly deaths, even great horror movies like Halloween, it adds an element of weight to it, – it's why like I get so frustrated when I, I saw Halloween in the theaters a few years ago and like people were laughing at Jamie Lee Curtis um, when she was hiding in the closet like – you know, you stupid idiot, and then laughing and stuff like that. Because I and and if I'm being more generous than I was when I shot them a very angry look as we were walking out of the theater, um, they 
I get that the inclination to kind of enjoy a horror movie like free from the mortality of life. Like it is one of the only times in any situation where you can have fun with the concept of gory, violent deaths. Uh, And I know that's why that genre gets a lot of criticism, some correct and some not, because I, you could probably make the case where that shouldn't be something you should be having fun with in any circumstance. But there, I think there is an element where it's a release of some sort for people. So, but like stuff like, I think a lot of times people's, because they think horror, fun, grisly death, they, they're, it colors the whole genre so that like legitimately horrifying experiences like Halloween or the exorcist or these things that are not funny end up making people think they're funny. And that ends up meaning that like, I think that can actually be damaging to people. But I do think there's also this big subgenre of movies where like, it's like death actually doesn't matter. Life is not precious in this universe. You have permission to have fun with this. And I think that that is, I don't, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure of the cycle, uh, uh, the psychology of why, but I think there is something valuable in this. And I think this movie does establish that very well, whether that was their intent or not. Whether or not it's the intent of the filmmakers to sort of make this farce about life where life and death don't really matter. It, it doesn't matter because like within seconds of this movie, they they basically have Uncle Anwar chillingly walk out to face the cops. Yeah, that's a good get, scene too. Get murdered with a smile on his well, face. Well, kids, gotta go. And like what? Ninety seconds later, he's effectively alive again. Yeah, that's that's insane. That shows you how little they regard the standard process of death and how you know like people should grieve for the dead like nobody grieves for the dead really except for like no uh colette briefly mourns for her team that got slaughtered in a machine gun fire and then she immediately was like so i met a cute boy (laughs) yeah it's a it's a minor inconvenience or unsuspect like i don't do you agree with me that there is like some value in art that doesn't regard life as precious yeah i mean if everything did that i would be like kind of troubled but within the specific context of a comedy it kind of lets us yes it lets us off the hook and sort of explore concepts that you you can't explore still anchored to the idea that every human life matters right yeah um, it's liberating because I'm a very humanist person. I think you are too. Like all of a sudden yeah. it, it becomes, it becomes even more interesting of a work for that reason. I, and I think that's what you and I have spoken about that. We don't, I don't think that watching a movie can cause someone to do something violent, but I do think that art affects you in surprising ways. So in the same way that like you mentioned of every movie, I do think there's probably something troubling if like all you are watching is movies that have with no regard for human life. This type of thing is not mature is not always the right word, but like, and I'm not trying to say like, oh, I am so sophisticated. I can handle blood diner and know that death is actually bad. But I, you know, I, I do think that one of the reasons we started this podcast is that there are a lot of challenging elements in some of the movies that Peter and I love, and a lot of people love when it comes to these. I don't think every single one is some sort of moral imperative to talk about, and I don't think 
on the flip side, it's healthy to just wave it away as they're just movies. I am interested, and I think Peter is too, with discussing the impact of watching movies like this, both good and bad. And I I see a value in a movie that treats death as something fun. There is there is a empowerment in that, right? Because death is not funny and terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. In real life, death is a uh, this literally something I think about every day. I'm like, ah shit. I'm yeah. getting older and I'm gonna die. I'm not psyched about it. Yeah. I mean I'm a little psyched about it. It means I get to stop podcasting. But other than that, I mean I think <laughs> You don't get to stop podcasting, Peter. <laughs> there's there's no afterlife, but if there is, there's a hell and you and I are gonna be doing we love to watch our friend uh Gary get pilliered <laughs> by a hot steak. We get to watch our own flesh burning. Uh it's an ironic title, because we don't like to watch our own flesh burning. We don't. Uh, or Gary. Gary's a good guy. I don't want to see him get pilloried. Yeah. The death is such a um, tyranny that we live under and there's like literally no way to break out of it. And like, yes, you can live on through your art in a symbolic fashion. You can live on through your kids in a genealogical fashion. But the fact that you have to die, it feels almost empowering when movies are like, who gives a shit? Let's move on. <laughs> yeah. You don't always have to deal with the cost. Yeah. There's no like World War II drama, you know, Great Depression thing or like com- romantic comedies where like people are dying and that's funny. But that there's a space for that. And horror movies kind of occupy that space for 99% of all art or movie related art that kind of takes that as one of its world building components. Yes, genre works allow or and can frame themselves very quickly and very easily within a context like that 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 you can very quickly liberate yourself from this like you know every life matters. Your life matters too. Like that sort of context. And it's why you can talk about stuff like what Jason movie has the best kills. Like and I also again I get the flip side of that is that they're I think there can be something concerning about the people that revel too much in wanting to talk about how cool kills are in movies and that's all they want to talk about. Like, I don't have, like, a bunch of answers and I'm not – I'm sorry if we're – it feels like we're on a high horse or something. But, like, it's something that I don't have a definitive view on. It is just something that, like, I can say why I like this and I do like that it doesn't treat death seriously. I don't know. If you know, I, but it does it well, and there's a lot of great kills in it. Yeah, I want to be on an extremely low horse. If we didn't have our feet in the stirrups, our feet would be dragging. Yeah, but we're still on a horse. I mean, and that's sweet. We're on a pony. Yeah, giddy up. So one thing that's we have to talk about in terms of theme is that there's not a whole lot of the brothers performing cannibalism in this. They give uh, Uncle Anwar a taste of the you know the the meat stew. And he says, like, oh, it's pretty good. And, like, it's obvious that Uncle Anwar was a cannibal. And in this, it can be presumed that that's what they're eating. They're eating the meat, too, and they're aware that it's human flesh and yada yada. This isn't like Raw, where the the act of consuming meat is very central to it. And, like, it's, it's part of the taboo that it's breaking is, like you actually eating meat. Instead, it's it's sort of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, particularly Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, but sort of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre where the passing on of cannibalism is really what 
is the terror of it. The, the idea that they are already, they're on stage two cannibalism. They're in, they're in version 2.0. Like, yes, they've already eaten human meat a million times and now they're, they're passing it on to you. It's the family that eats together because like, yes, they're brothers, they're bound in that blood bond. They, they got their traditions passed down from their uncle. Um, but it's not just about like them quietly eating cannibal having cannibalism inside their home like uh we are what we are um that's a movie that's very much about and it's chilean uh, original was uh very much about like this is our family's tradition this is what we are instead like these some of these cannibal movies are like no no, no it's not just about us yeah well and we're profiting off them yeah yeah, yeah. And, and especially texas chainsaw massacre too they are have like think like some of the best very successful or something yeah yeah yeah, let's talk. So let's talk about the final scene. Uh, here's why I fucking love it, uh, and that is because they is the only movie I can think of where someone is goes to a crowded place to perform the ritual to uh, bring a god into this world and rip the fabric of t- time and space, and no one's fucking paying attention because <laughs> there's two stages, right? So it's yeah. like they're the they're doing the whole thing. They're saying all the words loudly. One stage is is this rad sort of like punk rock band. Um, Well, besides those two Nazi guys. And they have two Nazis, but like in the context of punk rock. They also have a horse. They also have a horse. And they're doing like sort of like a cowboy dance at times. Like it's all, that's kind of the point of it is that like it's supposed to be this sort of like punk rock thrash show where like they're just throwing all these genres together. And the, the, the Nazis are there as sort of an antagonistic sort of thing we're gonna dress as villains because these are the cartoon villains that you grew up hating right like you're the generation that didn't grow up with nazis you grew up with cartoon versions of nazis and now we have actual nazis so we see it and we're like we should talk about how the music is all written for this movie and really good yeah 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 yeah. it's a nice mix so there's a duopy music that uh, comes throughout because it's sort of touching on this like intergenerational conversation, right? Like uh, the uh, they're getting passed down these traditions from their uncle. They're very much living in this like sort of childlike fantasy, and that's why they that's why they act like kids. That's part of the reason that they're so gleeful and joyful about this stuff. Like they didn't ever have to morally grow up. They were just like, well, Sheetar's coming. We got to prepare for Sheetar, and then they kept that that childlike bond. And it's sort of like a Christine thing where like the 80s and the 50s collapse. Yep. So the movie does have awesome punk music too. And in the finale, they do something really incredible, which is the punk music is going. And then there's moments on stage where like the shitar ritual is sort of coming, coming to fruition. And it sort of transitions into beautiful classical music. Yep. And it's, it's so well done and it shows a technical level of mastery that like I think you could ignore in parts of other parts of the movie, but you can't ignore here. It is really, really good. <laughs> uh, but let's let's go back to the finale, though, before we. But yeah. In the finale, there's there's this zombie orgy, basically. And it's just like lots of smashed together shots of people like eating each other. And it's 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 uh, one of those scenes that you can't tell if it's perfectly done because of a level of technical skill or it's perfectly done because the editor, you know, was just kind of trying to make whatever he could from the he or she could from the mess. But that sort of messy punk rock just like smashing together all these these cuts 
really lends itself to the chaos of the, 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 the debauched blood zombie orgy that's going on all around them. And it, I, I love one of my favorite things about this movie is the energy of it. The the drunken cocaine energy that just runs throughout of it that like almost never seems to to wane. Yeah. Yeah. And the ending is just, yeah, it throws everything out there. Especially this time watching it, partially because I don't remember the first time. I just had trouble getting over the like, oh, they're doing the whole ceremony in front of everyone and no one is noticing. And it takes a while. Like, they they think uh, the people changing. They think people getting shot. Like, the band never stops playing even when, like, lightning bolts is coming out of Sheetar. It is just that, yeah, we're at a crazy 80s fucking cocaine club. Uh, it's going to take a lot before I notice something's up. Yeah, I've been uh, pretty fucked up on drugs right now, and I really don't need um, to deal with all that stuff. I'm just going to focus on me and my yeah. drugs right now. There's a horse playing drums, so a guy with some green face paint. Not messing me up here. <laughs> I love that on a comedy level that like these people are literally witnessing and taking a part of the end of the world. And yeah. <laughs> and they're, they're blasé about it. They don't care. They don't, they don't care. It's amazing. <laughs> like, yeah. the only people that care are the cops because they've been doing this deep research and... Well, and they care enough just to shoot everyone. <laughs> they come in like real life cops and just shoot shoot now and ask questions never. Because there is, there's so much shit where it's just like, oh, this is a zombie movie now. They're just pumping party guests full of bullets yeah it is it's pretty good so yeah my thought final thoughts of the movie peter is that it's it's under 90 minutes it's crazy it does deserve to be mentioned i think in uh over the top batshit insane gory crazy funny 80s comedy movies like i do think it's one of the classics i gave it a very high rating on letterbox that rating held um, I think I'm going to remember it better this time because I have the notes and have to talk about it for the show. But it is easily something that I would have been evangelical about um, in high school. And if I was in a situation where friends came over to watch movies as opposed to taking care of two young children, I would show this to to those hypothetical friends who uh, also don't have children and we would have time to watch movies together. There's a party energy to this and it's a What'd your brother thing. think of it? Because you showed it to your brother, right? My brother also really liked it and he was like, what the fuck did you just show me? And I was like, have you ever seen anything like it? And he's like, nope. And I was like, yeah, exactly. Now get out of my house we watched it the first time after coming home from a party we were barely drunk i would say but we, we were kind of out of it and he was like am i just like tired and messed up like why can i not follow this and i was like no it's the movie it's not you it's moving too quick for your brother because it moves at such a pace where you're like I, I think that the first time you see it it just seems like a mess of scenes but then like when you watch it two or three times you're like oh it's just a very simple plot and they're just doing the same thing over and over again. But what? But every scene is directed differently. There's no sense of repetition the way you'd expect from one of these like serial killer type movies. Because like you yep. don't even you don't even sort it in the same genre as other serial killer movies, right? Like even though they are serial killers, <laughs> like you don't you don't think about no, it. No, no. I mean they're real. Like their their first victims are twenty of them. Yeah. So they start out. Uh, they don't start out as oatmeal. They go right to cereal. <laughs> By the end of the movie, they're pancakes, baby. <laughs> and it's it's just a... Are, are pancakes the highest echelon of, of breakfast food or am I missing something? 
Do you mean, think I it's would the waffles higher than pancakes? But I got your point. Yeah, I think I think probably we'd all agree the sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddle is really the epitome of breakfast. Well, because it's got there's, sausage. There's no compromise there. It's got egg. It's got cheese and Griddle. pancake bun. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it kind of there's no compromise involved there. If you compromise in your life, especially when it comes to breakfast food, you are weak. Yeah, cowardly even. Not not made of the good stuff. Or made of the stuff. The famous yeah. marshmallow elixir that turns you into a monster. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Peter, this is the end of uh, the family that eats together. Stays together. Which is ironic because none of these families stay together. I mean, Except, I guess the, the the Texas Chainsaw Massacre family does. They kept on they kept on trucking, and let's not ignore the fact that, you know, in Raw they might be in prison, but they, they, they stayed together and in this, they stayed together in death. Yeah, and Spider Baby, they stayed together in death, so you're in right, death. Peter. I was wrong. Uh so we're after two months of horror movies, and like a lot of cannibal movies, because Ravenous was part of our Halloween month. We're taking a sharp turn. So it's December. It's our Christmas month. The last two years, we've done we've, – we've tried to go a little off the wall. Like it's Christmas. Everyone expects us to do Christmas stuff. So let's do it with a twist. So the first year, we did Christmas horror movies. The next year, we said, hey, let's do Shane Black Christmas set movies so that we have the option to choose from every Shane Black movie. Um, and we did that and that was a lot of fun. And this time, Peter and I are settling down. We're accepting the fact that it's our third December as a podcast, and we're just picking Christmas classics with a little twist in that we're trying to do Christmas classics in each genre. Kind of like we do for Summer Camp Month, like mini Christmas genre. So we have It's a Wonderful Life, who we have a guest for that we will announce at a later date. We have uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas. Which we have a guest for that I can announce now because I remember who it is. Morgan Rennes. <laughs> we have uh, – we have uh, – thankfully, the guest that is starring on It's a Wonderful Life for us is a screenwriter who does not listen to this podcast. Um, so, he will not care that I, I forgot what his last name is. And we have Home Alone. Which we are guestless for because everyone we suggested it to had some very negative things to say about Home Alone. And fuck that. Peter and I like the movie. Uh, yeah, and, I, think I, I think we're really willing to burn straw men for that as best as we can. And then it wouldn't be Christmas classics without talking about the other component of – because there's actually like there's not a ton – of Christmas movies, especially ones that are considered good, but where is a lot of our Christmas memories come from? And that is the Christmas TV specials. So for our actual Christmas episode, we are doing the television version of How the Grinch Stole Christmas, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, and we may have one or two others snuck in there as well. Yeah, I'm super excited about next month, and it'll be a nice change of pace after doing so much horror and heavy stuff and murdery stuff for the past few months. Um, it'll be nice to do something uh, light, like Home Alone, that no one is bothered by the mortality of it. <laughs> no, or uh, or It's a Wonderful Life, which isn't something we all feel like we're living without the happy ending. <laughs> uh, so, with that, we bid you uh, a goodbye to November. Just keep those sleigh bells ringing. Jing, jing, jingling, jing. This feels especially dirty doing in September. <laughs>
<laughs> it feels wrong. Filthy. It feels wrong. It'll feel better when we listen back. Uh, keep jing jing jingling, folks. Jangling, yeah. Good night. Jing jingling, jing. Jing. folks thanks for listening to we love to watch thank you so much for listening to our show and we've got just a few quick announcements for you there ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs baby if you'd like to talk to us uh tell us we're stupid tell us we're beautiful the quickest way to get to us is our facebook group facebook.com slash we love to watch or our website, WLTWpodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, we don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available if you don't use iTunes. We're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, Tune in. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, Let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.